Well, when we're considering matters such as church discipline, it's a good thing to be reminded of that this is something that's done in a spirit of love. This is not seeking to be cruel and hard. This is not looking for an opportunity to strike out at someone that we've finally got a way to get them. But this is an expression of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's an expression of our love to God Himself. It's an expression of love for Christ. It's an expression of love for His church and that the church might be pure. So we act in love as we consider this morning the process and the work this morning of a particular example of church discipline. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 5. Tell you what, I think we'll just read through this entire chapter because it's applicable for us today, and I'm not going to preach on this entire chapter. Next week I'll take verses 6 through 8, and I'm not going to preach on 9 through 13, although we will be making references to that part even in my message this morning. So let's go ahead and we'll read through the entire chapter here of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. An immorality of, of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. Now again, we don't know the specifics. The question is, is this a someone who is with his mother, with a stepmother? We're not real sure, but either way, it's an issue of sin. Verse 2. And you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, And I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside... God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Well, again, Paul addressing here a key concern of the church, the concern of immorality. 
church discipline, when we talk about that, it can bring a lot of different images or responses. To some, you, talk, you start talking about something like church discipline that it seems unloving. Is, is this just not a classic example of what the church has been accused of as we're, we're shooting our wounded? If we're trying to address issues and sins within the church. Well, there's always that possibility. There's always the possibility that when you begin to address matters within the church, that we do begin, in fact, begin to shoot our wounded in that we're not dealing with people who who have no remorse. And that would be the shooting of the wounded. Those who have sinned, those who have repentant, repentant spirits, and we're not desiring to come alongside to minister to them. That's the shooting of our wounded. However, when there is sin that is serious, we need to recognize that's not what this is about. It's not going around... Uh, with with our little vendetta and hope, all right, let's see who we can clear out this week. That's not what it's about. You know, the, the idea of hang them high seems somewhat devoid of the Christian graces. And that's not what it's about. What is a church to do? Well, we need to concede this morning that church discipline is a biblical concept. We've got to have that as our beginning point. We make that concession. We acknowledge, we admit it is a biblical concept. We looked at last week in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 and following. Who is speaking here? It's the Lord of the church. It's Jesus Christ giving instructions that if your brother sins, you go to him. If it's a matter, and we talk about it, if it's a matter that's of some significance, some things we say love covers, and so we're willing to overlook it. But if there's a personal offense against you, he sinned against you, you go to him in private. And if he responds, he repents, and you've won that brother. But if that doesn't do the trick, then you go and you take some witnesses. So it needs to be something that can be proven. So you go and you take witnesses with you to bear witness of, of what you've seen and what this person is saying and their unwillingness to repent. So there's, there's the issue. You're dealing with an unrepentant spirit. And if that doesn't do it, if he doesn't respond to that group, then you bring the matter before the church. And the church removes the individual. You cast them out and you treat them as, in the words of Jesus, you treat them as a tax gatherer and a Gentile. They understood that, man. That's someone, they're outside. They're not an insider. They're the outside. You don't treat them as a brother in the Lord. This is the words of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. This is His, this is His order. And so we come here in the book of 1 Corinthians. We have Paul here addressing this situation and how is how is church discipline to be administered in this particular situation well first of all we see that it must always be assessed by God's standard it must always be assessed by God's standard Paul assesses the situation at Corinth by the only objective standard that we, that he has which is God's standard it's the word of God God has revealed his will what's the issue here well, what's the sin? It's mentioned there in verse 1. It's actually reported that immorality among you and such a kind does not exist even among the Gentiles. Someone has his father's wife. It's an incestuous relationship. Pretty serious. And Paul says, you know, it's not that this is completely unheard of among the Gentiles, but let me tell you, not many even among the rank and file heathens will approve of this type of thing. I mean, this is not only beneath, beneath Christianity... This is subhuman. Not even the rank and file heathens approve of this. So he's really got a, an issue at hand here, the church here. Well, what's the standard? 
Well, the standard is given to us in Leviticus 18. There's the biblical standard of that this type of relationship is outside the parameters of God's revealed will. What is the solution? The solution is, in Paul's mind, excommunication. Verse 2, You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. And then verse 5, he says, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh and his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. Then verse 13, Those who are outside God judges, and here's the word of exhortation to him, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And where's that from? from? That comes right from the Old Testament. Well, what's the proof that that's, this is Paul acting within God's will? You know, maybe Paul, he's, maybe he's jumping to conclusions here. Maybe he's moving too fast. Is that the case? Well, we're not going to turn all these passages, but just think with me for a minute. You remember in Joshua chapter 7, the sin of Achan? You remember when the city... The city of, Jer- of Jericho was being taken, and so the, the people went in, the Israelites went in, they, they took the city, and then they were going to the next battle, the town of Ai, they went in, and what happened? They were, they were defeated. What happened? There was sin. The sin of Achan. And it had to be dealt with, and had to be removed. Acts chapter 5, let's get to the New Testament. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife? The church experiencing, experiencing wonderful growth. There's a spirit of grace and generosity within the ranks of the church. And people are giving their land. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sell this property. They come and, and Ananias gives us money. Here's the money that we have for selling this property. In some way, he communicated that this was the full amount. Now, he wasn't under no obligation, first of all, not to give, to give any of it. He didn't have to give anything. He had to sell. It wasn't required. It was voluntary. And number two... He could have just said, you know, we sold some property. We want to give part of what we've done. But what, evidently what had happened, he, he indicated by the way he gave it that we sold this property, here it is. And it wasn't all of it. So he was being deceitful. And so, confronted by the apostles, you're not lying to me and you're lying to God. And so Ananias, his, his life taken. A few hours later, his wife comes in. Is this how much he sold the property for? Yep. <coughs> Boom. Life taken. So that just tells me that God does these things. That doesn't tell me that I need to do these things. That doesn't tell me the church needs to do these things. Now, what that shows us is that there, that God reveals His desire for the purity among His ranks. And on those occasions, this is the revelation of what it could mean and rightfully means. And God has the right of, of taking human life, which He does in these cases... Or in the Old Testament with Achan, he, the, the nation of Israel had that, that right imposed, given to them. But he's revealing to us there's a desire for purity within the ranks. This is how serious it is. Now, obviously, he doesn't always do that. But here in the, in the beginning of in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, you see it's the beginning point. He's laying out, this is how serious it is to sin within the context of the church community. It's not that you always be struck down if you do it, but I want you to know this is the way I view it. It's serious. And so God removes those from the midst. In Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, which again we looked at last week, that was Jesus' instruction. And the apostles given the authority of the guardian, as the guardians of the church, in Christ's stead. So when Paul speaks, he speaks as an apostle. 
He speaks with apostolic authority of and with we recognize as being inerrant, infallible. By what right? Well, he wrote much of our New Testament. <laughs> My man, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So a man who acted as Christ's representative with apostolic authority given to him. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses five, verse 5 and following, it deals there with false prophets. You, someone comes in and they, they say, this is what you're supposed to do. You stone them. Well, that's Old Testament. Well, what does Paul quote there in verse 13 of chapter 5? Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 5. Where it's from. Remove the wicked man from among you. So Paul recognizes that there is application of Old Testament truth given in the New Testament to be applied there within the context of the church. Now the question may come up, well, where is, where is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 the pattern of, of Matthew 18? You know, we had the pattern there of Matthew 18. Well, if your brother sins against you, you go and you're private. And if that doesn't work, you go and you get some witnesses. If that doesn't work, then you go to the church. And here is Paul. He's not even here in Corinth. He is looking at this situation. And he's come in. And, you know, Paul's not saying, you know, a couple of you elders need to go and talk to this individual. Paul's not saying, I'm going to come and go talk to this individual on a private basis. Where is the pattern here that we looked at last week of Matthew 18? looks like he's just violating the whole principle here. Well, what you see in Matthew chapter 18, you have to remember, we talked about that last week. Matthew 18 begins, it begins as a personal offense between one brother and another. It's a personal offense. So you deal with a personal offense in a different way. So what you find in Matthew 18 is how something that began as relatively small as a personal offense between one brother and another, how it becomes larger and larger and becomes a matter for the whole church. You deal with it on a private basis as long as it's successful. And that doesn't work. It becomes a larger circle until finally the whole church is brought into it. But what you have here in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, this is not a personal offense. This is open, obvious, flagrant sin. It's scandalous sin. So there's no question here about whether well, this brother done wrong or not. No, everybody knows. So the pattern of, of Matthew 18 is not applicable here because you're not dealing with a private offense. So if you look at Matthew 18, you've got to remember it starts and the desire is it starts here with one brother to another brother and it stays there. That's the ideal. And it goes no further. One brother goes, he's sinned against me. You go to him, he repents and it's over. But the reality is, it doesn't always happen that way. And so, we look at uh, Matthew of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a different situation entirely. There's, there's no reason here that, uh, that uh, the elders would have to go and address this. Everybody knows it. This is, this is a sin of such a nature, such a serious sin, it needs to be dealt with drastically, quickly, immediately. I had a situation some years ago in the church when we were in Middle Tennessee, and uh, an individual who was asked to meet with the elders and he refused to do so over a matter, and it was just a matter of we need some clarification on some things, and so he refused to do so. And so, as as a course, it finally became a matter of at that time we had a few elders, and we our process at that church was that we would broaden the circle of participation to the body of deacons, 
And at that point, I was a deacon. I wasn't. I was not an elder in the church. And so we became in a much larger circle. We became the second circle of of discussion and consideration of what needs to be done. So the elders have already been dealing with it on one level. They bring it to the the deacons again. We're just a larger circle of men, something of a a counsel and help to the elders there. And this person who was at this point nearing church discipline because of his refusal to simply meet with the elders and address these charges, he, he dictated to us that each one of us had the responsibility of coming to him individually according to Matthew 18. That was his understanding of things, which it wasn't. Number one, it wasn't a personal offense. Number two, there's no call in Matthew 18 even that you go through every individual. All it takes is one. If the one you sinned against. But see, there's so much of a misunderstanding today of how, you know, some people all in all of church discipline, well, it's Matthew 18. You go by one, then you go by two or three, and then you the church. If you're dealing with a personal issue, that's true, but it's not always a personal issue. We've got to remember we're not dealing with a personal issue here. See, there are other forms of discipline that are given to us in the Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. We'll just go ahead and turn to these. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all. Now, where's the privately go to your brother here in this situation? Because we're not talking about personal offense. If there was someone in this congregation who, who were in a in a life of sin and it was known to all, and we're and coming in this, into the church situation and as though there was nothing wrong. We have the prerogative here of rebuking, even from the pulpit, if necessary, to rebuke publicly before all. And then, what's the reason for that? Those who continue sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get my name tagged up there. <laughs> There's a reason for that. You address the sin and you rebuke as necessary, if it's necessary, in the presence of all, but it. But the rest was it makes us stop and think, now, wait a minute, <laughs> this is serious. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse fourteen. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse fourteen. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. Admonish the unruly. You got someone out of line. You admonish them. You give words of correction. You go to them and you address the issues there. And again, depending on the nature of sin, uh, it may be something you have to address in the context of the gathered church. Then Second Second Thessalonians, chapter three. Second Thessalonians, chapter three. Look at verse six. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we're placing this command upon you in the authority of Christ. Apostolic authority. That you do this. This is not an option. Okay? It's a command. Keep aloof from every brother 
who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you've received from us. Separate yourselves from them. And then look, uh, same chapter, verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him. Why? So that he may be put to shame. So there's different types of, of discipline. These are other forms that the Scripture gives to us. The public rebuke, the warning, the disassociation. That's all part of what's given to us in the Scripture. Folks, we're, what we're saying here is that the Scripture gives the standard. The Scripture gives us the standard of what the sin is. The Scripture gives us the standard. This is to be the response. This is how you deal with this. So we must always assess the behavior by God's standard. The test is what says the Lord in this given situation. And it's not that every situation is always so clear-cut and easy. Sometimes it will take time to work through and to think through and to pray through, study the Scriptures over what seems to be the best way to respond to this given situation. But the question is not, who is this? Is this someone that, you know, a real influence? We need to be careful here. Or what are the extenuating circumstances? We had an issue of the church that I was aware of that uh, a young lady living in immorality, in a moral relationship with a man she wasn't married to. You know what the response was of some of the leadership? Well, you know, I think her daddy's beat her. He's driven her to this. You know, I'm not saying that that's not sad. But do we begin to excuse sin because of that? The question is not what are the extenuating circumstances. The question is what says the Lord here? Not that we'd don't go with some sensitivity. Don't misunderstand me. And that's why we've been singing about love. Right? Love. We're going to the spirit of love. And the issue is not how they respond. You know, I know this person. We do that, you know, we're going to lose them. You're never going to get a chance to talk to them again if you go this route with them. Well, what are they, if that's the case, then we're demonstrating someone that's likely outside Christ anyway. The response, however, may be temporary. You know, sometimes an initial response from somebody might be, who do you think you are? But sometimes they'll get beyond that and the word, Spirit of God will hearts for the brother and sister of the Lord. You trust that it's so. And they see the error of their way and they begin to respond to the, to the work of the Spirit of God in their heart and they're willing to come and say, you know, I, I took offense, I took issue with you on that, but you were right. I thank you for that. Well, the response just simply may be indicative of where they really are. But we don't ask that question to determine the course of action. To determine the course of action, the question to ask is, what says the Lord here? There is a standard. There is a moral compass for the church. It is God's Word. So we must assess it by God's standard. Number two, we must align with Christ's authority. It must align with Christ's authority. How could anyone suggest or any church take such a harsh action? And this is harsh. The idea that we would ever think about, quote, excommunicating somebody, how could we think about that in the spirit of, of love? Well, Paul's answer to that question is this. You do it by the authority given and entrusted to you by Jesus Christ as His church, His body. Verse 4. 
Here's the Apostle Paul speaking and, and writing for us with apostolic authority. We recognize in, inerrancy, infallibility here. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled. Now, some say what he's saying there when you're gathered together in the name of our Lord Jesus. But anyway, it's very close. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, and with the power of our Lord Jesus. In the name of the Lord Jesus, and with the power of the Lord Jesus. That's two very powerful, two very powerful lines of thought there, isn't it? See, Paul's not coming in here with experimental church polity. Let's try this and see what happens. That's not what he's doing. This isn't the great experiment. We're going to try this in Corinth. As if, if it doesn't fly, we'll try something else in Thessalonica. No. This is not experimental church polity. This is faithfulness to our calling as a church. It is choosing submission and obedience to Christ, the head of a church. Or defiance with man-made alternatives. That's our options. It is faithfulness and obedience. Or it is defiance with whatever man-made alternative we come up with. That's it. But Paul, as he takes this course of action, he is very clear and he's very comfortable in saying if there's anyone, he's not going to say this lightly. In the name of our Lord Jesus and with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided this. To deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail in just a few minutes. See, church discipline is not an option. It's a command. Something that we must do and for a church to refuse to administer discipline when warranted is for a church to abandon the authority and the, and the power of Christ and begin the process of ceasing to be a church. You remember last week we considered the three marks historically identifying the church? You remember the three marks? Preach of the Word. Administration of the sacraments. Church discipline. When they decide, let's spell out what a true church looks like. This is what they can have. These are the essentials. The centrality of the preaching of the Word. The right administration of the sacraments. Baptism and Lord's Supper. Church discipline. Now, where in the world would that have been? If you'd asked modern American church today, what are the, what's going to make a church a church? I guarantee you, number three, church discipline would not have been on that list. It wouldn't have. But that's where our, our historical forefathers were, and that's from the Belgian Confession back even as, again, as far as the 1500s. See, an undisciplined church is a spiritually powerless church. And remember also the quote that I gave you last week from the man who said that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. And why would he not? If he's given his order, his directives for this is the way you address things, this is what you do in such situations, and you're not going to abide by his rule, it's not his church, it's ours. And why should he stay? So the question then becomes for us, with whom will we align? Will we align ourselves with Christ and thereby acting with his authority, his approval, and his power, or shall we operate by our own wisdom, contrary to Christ's command for his church? 
and for all practical purposes ceasing to become a church. That's that's our options. Well, who are we? Who am I that we make such a judgment upon on anybody? Who are we to think that we should do that? Well, corporately we're this. Corporately we are the body of Jesus Christ. We are acting with the authority of Christ and we are acting consistently with the mind of Christ. First Peter, I mean first Corinthians two sixteen. We have the mind of Christ. Acting for the glory of Christ. So it's not that we come individually making an assessment. We come as a body. We come as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, acting with His authority, with His mind, and for His glory. We are willing to address such matters. So the question is not, who am I or who are we to judge? The question is this, who are we to be so arrogant to think that we have a better way than Christ Himself? There's the real question. We're not going to do church discipline. Who in the world do we think we are? That we think we've got a better way than Christ, the Lord of the church. We must align ourselves with Christ's authority. And Paul, he clearly, he's acting in the name, he's acting again in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. I act as the representative of Christ. That's what he's saying here. As though Christ were here. I'm acting. This is the action, the course of action. And what is the action? Number three, we act in Christian spirit. We act in a Christian spirit. What is the spirit in which a course of action is to be taken? Number one, there ought to be grief. Verse two, and you have become arrogant and you haven't mourned. You should be mourning. There ought to be some grief in your heart about this type of a sin going on. The question is, well, how in the world does this church know they... It says, he says, you're, you're arrogant. What's the deal here? It, it seems that there were those within the context of the church of Corinth. They had arrived to this understanding of spirituality that the things that you do in the body don't matter and so this relationship is no, no big deal. We live above and beyond this physical realm of life. We're spiritually minded people, so this is just a body, no issue here. Super spiritual saints, that's what the concept is. And so they look at someone like this and say, hey, no big deal. We're, this is just body. We live in a higher realm than that. So they're boasting about where they where they believe themselves to be spiritually. Paul says that you've become arrogant and haven't mourned instead. You should have been mourning and grieving over this. That we are condoning a horrendous sin within our ranks by our inactivity. And that sin has found fertile soil and a sin of this nature in the heart of one of our own members here. That should bring great grief to our hearts. And it should. It's not that we're looking at, always looking out of the eyes like, where, where can I find this in the day? It's that we ever spot it. We grieve over it. God, I hurt us. But also... Not only with the spirit of grief, but also with the spirit of hope. Look at verse 5. I've decided to deliver, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what in the world does this mean? This delivering of one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Well, I'm not going to go into all of it because I'm not convinced I understand all it completely means. But I think it at least means this. It's the removal outside the, the safety 
of the church. It's not like it's some super spiritual thing. I'm going to deliver you over to Satan or some type of a seance or something. It's not that. But it is recognizing as this person is removed from the safety of the church and the benefits of being within the context of the church that it sets them up to experience the, the attacks, the destruction of Satan coming. I mean, where's your safety net, folks? It's in the church. And so they're removed, and I've decided to, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Again, simply put it this way. Whatever else it may mean, it means at least this. There are... Whatever the temporary suffering and loss may be, that there's some hope here of eternal benefit to be won. I've decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, this person may experience death, physical death, but the hope is, even if that's the case, that this person is a true child of God. So that they will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So church discipline is administered with the spirit of hope. Hope that it will bring about repentance. Hope that it will do some good. And if there is continued unrepentance, can a person be a child of God and continue in their unrepentant? Yes, they can. But God will take them. I think that's Sam. I think think we have every reason to believe that the general rule is that God will work repentance in His children. But there's also the reality that there are some who are going to continue in sin. They're going to fall in sin. I've known some who, who administered, who had church discipline administered to them because of their moral relationships. And they're still in their sin and they're never repented. I cannot see that going on just without end. And a child of God. I think what what we're seeing here, what, what Paul is saying here, is verse five is there is the there is the acceleration of the process here that he will begin to experience the consequences of his sin at an accelerated pace and the ultimately death. That's the ultimate consequence of sin. So by the giving of one to Satan, it just he's removed from him from the shelter of the church. And there is the acceleration of the process of sin, the consequences coming quickly upon the individual. But it's done with hope. See, sin should always be troubling, but especially in the church. But our aim is always to be redemptive. That's our aim. It's always to be redemptive here. There's always there's always the hope that whatever the sin may be that we we see within the context of a church, that we always have that hope this is truly our brother or sister that's fallen into a, a sin that we can't imagine, but whatever, there's the hope that this is a child of God. This is my brother in the Lord. And so it, it's always redemptive. I want to be of help and of assistance in doing what I can do to bring this brother or this sister from this sin, from this slavery to this sin. That's my hope. So it's always redemptive. And if this is our goal, the means to accomplish this end, the means to accomplish this redemptive work has been spelled out for us in the Scriptures. We don't have to guess about it. Again, we don't have to go and approach this with some type of experimental church polity here. Let's, this is go to the Scripture. What do we need to do? See, love for the sinner is essential. But love for Christ and the purity 
of his, and his, of his church must be paramount. Love for the sinner is essential. But love for Christ and for the purity of his church must be paramount. So whatever love for Christ and the purity of his church means, we do. Sometimes it means, as we see here, the removal of one from your midst. See, there's a line that is to be walked by the church. And how do you find that line that's somewhere between a, what has the appearance of being a, a witch hunt or, on the other hand, the extreme of, well, anything goes and nothing's ever addressed? How do you find that line? Well, you walk this line. It's the line of biblical truth and instruction. That's it. We're only safe there. But it's done in the spirit of love. It's done in the spirit of humility spirit of grief and hope when we address such matters but at the same time out of love for Christ and love for his church there are matters that have to be addressed and I'm thankful this morning as I as I teach through this series with you that we're not having to deal with an issue here that's when it's tough as God we're going to preach on this for three Sundays and the fourth Sunday we're going to administer this on Sunday. you know we're not there thankfully this is the time to hear this is the time to set our hearts and our minds upon you know God forbid this ever arises within our context, but if it does, if it does, we know what our plan of action must be because we know what the Scripture says. That's why I'm teaching on this series. And that's why it's going to be something that I will propose that we add to our church constitution for a number of reasons. One that, it'd be, that we've already had the provision for and it's just never done, so we're going to put it in there now. The second as a safeguard for us as a church because as you know this is a society that will sue you for anything if you try to administer church discipline you do not have it spelled out you'd better be ready to go to court better be ready so that's another reason I've, I've taken the time to put together this sheet for you on church discipline and I've placed them out here on the podium on your way out this morning this is my proposal to the church while we're working our constitution that we add this this is small print, it's two pages on this, that we add this, to whatever it is, to our church constitution. Regarding church discipline, it deals with formative discipline we've talked about. That's the positive. You're under formative discipline right now. Right now. You are under formative discipline this morning in Sunday school for the ones of you in Sunday school. It's formative discipline. You're being instructed in the ways of God. But there's a place for corrective discipline. It addresses such issues as public reproof or censure, suspension, and if the reasons for suspension, five major categories. And then excommunication. It's right here. So take these. Uh, I think I've got four or five out there. If you if, uh, take one, a family or something, if you want some more, I can run, or you can run a copy if you want to. I don't have to do it out here. But take those for consideration. This is something we're going to discuss in the next few weeks. Uh, perhaps even some this Wednesday night. But it's God's it's God's direction for us, and this is the time to address it. You know, there's there's some real advantages to being small like we are. You know, to, to be where we are. You know, we're not having to deal with with messes right now. But that's my goal. That's my hope that we be a church that we have spelled out constitutionally. This is what we're going to do. This is what the Scripture says. This is what we we've got to do. 
out of love for Christ, out of love for His church, out of love one for another. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have shown us the way of love. And in the words of one modern Christian writer, sometimes that love must be tough. Well, we confess this probably isn't the way that we would do this. But because it's yours, and if it's because it's right and it's good, we, we see the, we see the wisdom of it. So it help us to be a church that is just simply devoted to your word. We do not want to have a, a spirit of hardness. We do not want to have a spirit of, of just going and looking, trying to find trouble. We're simply to address matters that must be addressed. We need the mind of Christ. And we thank you this morning that we as your corporate body, can acknowledge that you've given that to us. As we come to your table, we ask, O Father, that you would remind us of the price paid for us, the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the pouring out of his love for us, for his church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.